The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Husqvarna, ready when you are. The parks of London might have been a bit thin on things. <laughs> a bit of flower foraging going on, was there? Don't grow flowers for brides. I completely disagree. Hello and welcome to So Grow Repeat. I'm Alice Fowler. And I'm Jane Perrone. And this episode we're talking flowers. A house with a vase of flowers is a home. Nothing is more welcoming than to be greeted by a bunch of blooms. Britain has a long history of cut flowers and on this episode we delve into the politics of the business. We'll also find out who you should be buying from and learn tricks to growing your own with expert flower growers Charlie Ryrie and Ben Rainyard. But first we're joined in the studio by journalist Lucy Siegel. Lucy has written a lot about the ethics and environmental impact of buying cut flowers. Welcome Lucy. Hello. So for most of us we go to buy some cut flowers it might be from a supermarket it might even be from a petrol station forecourt but often most of us don't look at those flowers and think where are they from where are most of our cut flowers that we're buying in the mass market coming from these days i'm slightly saddened that people buy flowers from a petrol station forecourt they still do though i know it's just it's not very romantic it's not very no you're right it's It's not slightly suggests (laughs) slightly suggests they didn't think about it very much in advance but statistically i suppose kenya is massive massive exporter to the eu and to the uk in particular and the logistics of the cut flower industry are absolutely phenomenal so flowers that are harvested in kenya in two days can have cleared customs, but obviously been transported, cleared customs, gone to Holland, been cut and trimmed, and be on the shelf or in the forecourt, wherever you buy your flowers from, within two days. And that's extraordinary. Mm. So it's an extraordinary kind of feat of logistics. They have a charmed passage through customs because it's such a huge, significant global industry and there's so much money. Um, there's other countries that are significant players as well, Israel, Japan, Colombia. And it's tended to kind of stay over the last decades sort of the same countries there's other countries trying to break through Ethiopia um, has done very well if you categorize doing very well as producing a lot of stems and Rwanda is supposed to be the next big place to produce cut flowers for the international market and it's a very very complicated issue you can't just rely on normal environmental life cycle analysis to say what's good and what's bad it's incredibly nuanced actually And that's the worst possible scenario for the consumer who's maybe thinking a little bit about food miles now, but hasn't really started thinking about cut flower miles or how workers are being treated. It is a bit of a minefield for us all. Is there anything we can do to navigate our way through this difficult uh... yeah I think so I mean you tend to get a lot of people like me writing about this around Valentine's Day (laughs) you know how imaginative but you know I think it's a question of ethics to be honest so rather than looking at the sort of bald 
eco-analysis, which, to be honest, because this is such a huge global industry, there's many ways of doing a life cycle analysis or eco-impact analysis on a product. And, you know, the WWF, for example, has been a really big player in in terms of trying to get the flower industry to become more sustainable. And there's a lot of um, suggestion that they've done quite well in places like Kenya. However, if you drill down a little bit into the economics or the way this industry works, there's all sorts of preferential treatments that agribusiness gets in in floriculture. Uh, One of the things you'll notice is that there's no duty on pesticide imports into countries producing flowers. So what does this tell me? Mm. It tells me they're using a beep load of pesticides in production Uh, and then you don't have to go very far to find journals where they've actually studied the research on the growers on the people who are working with cut in the cut flower industry Uh, and it's pretty shocking actually It's, it's shocking in terms of the pesticides they're exposed to the fact that this is a really kind of story that's not really talked about and also you need to look at the pay you need to look at poverty pay it's no coincidence that big business is attracted to low-wage economies and in the cut flower industry it's we're looking at some of the lowest wages in agriculture and I'm afraid that's saying something Mm. I mean the problem is there's so there's so many layers to it isn't it because you're importing so that there's huge cost in terms of oil just transporting this stuff they're often refrigerated so that mm-hmm. they're still in bloom so there's extra cost there there's the workers rights there's the workers pay there's the workers health there's the environment of the place where they're being grown right so all those pesticides are going somewhere so mm-hmm. it's not just the workers those pesticides are going into the water source of other people living in that area and all of that stuff and then there's the kind of wider others such as the kind of insect population over there. So there's, I mean, if anybody has grown blooms at home, what they will know is that it's very hard to get consistently perfect flowers. And yet you go to a supermarket or a florist, wherever you go, every single one looks pristine. And you have to question how you got there, right? And yet at the same time, there's nothing more joyous than a bunch of flowers. And and I love that you call them blooms because that's such a (laughs) joyous word, isn't it? It really is, you know. And you're right, it's so uplifting when you see a really... It's always really hard when the worst kind of environmental habits are done out of kind of the best intention. So you buy somebody flowers to cheer them up, to celebrate, to say, I'm sorry, this thing happened to you. They're all gestures which are very much emotionally based from the heart. And yet Mm. the repercussion of that gesture just ripples right the way across the world. Right, exactly. And this is where I think that the consumer has to take too much responsibility for an industry Mm. that's outsourcing responsibility, if you like. And another thing to think about is that the counter argument is, well, this brings really, really important money to growing areas that have have not seen these levels of income before, foreign direct investment. But then you look at who owns the actual company. So I was looking at Ethiopia before I came to talk to you. I think there's 84, around 84 big flower companies. 75, I think, are owned by uh, foreigners. And there's all this leakage, you know. And then as you pointed out, it's the after effects, the legacy effects of the soil depletion, the pesticide, not just the workers' health, as you Mm -hmm. said. So it's all these long-term what we call externalities, environmental externalities, which are not being costed Mm. into a bunch of flowers. And that, to me, is very reminiscent of the fast fashion sector, which I know a lot more about. So I always bring things back to fast fashion (laughs) because I'm on more secure ground. But I think there are some really interesting parallels. And I think that actually consumers have seen 
a sort of deflation in prices of cut flowers mm. over the last sort of two decades, two, three decades, because of this huge expansion in the industry. And it's extraordinary. Some of the innovation is extraordinary. But this is where you see innovation in pesticides. Mm. Uh, the EU has just cleared two GMO flower imports to genetically modified uh, carnation. Why? Because I would imagine... So they can use certain kind of pesticide. and So there'll be some kind of... It'll be like GMO corn where the plant has had some kind of DNA put into it so that it can be resistant towards certain pests and issues. Resistant, maybe not so water yeah. needy or, you know, there's lots of different attributes that you can uh, mm. grow in. So I sound like I'm advocating GMO? I'm not. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, there's, so there's lots of what, what people would term innovation. There's also, if you look at cargo flights, the way that flowers are, are flown all around the world, there's actually been quite a shift towards ship cargo. Mm-hmm. So actually taking them by sea. Um, and there's all sorts of units that they're now trying to work with in, in terms of, you know, getting away from planes because it's too expensive, actually. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of things that are happening. But still, when I read through the industry and all the big financial organisations produce reports on the flower industry, which tells you how mm-hmm. significant it is, what I'm not finding is much discussion of these environmental or ethical externalities. And I think the more you, the more you delve into this as a consumer, the more... It impacts your feelings when you look at those flowers. A colleague at work had some flowers delivered for something and they were these very, very tightly packed rosebuds all packed in together. And I just looked at them and I didn't feel any joy. I didn't, mm. They didn't smell of anything. I just felt really sad mm. because they, I just, they, didn't look, they didn't look that appealing in a way because my mindset has been changed to sort of think about the background of what's happened, how those flowers have got to London and I think that's where an alternative route of growing your own comes in in that once you start doing that and appreciating some of the flowers that you can grow in your own garden then you start to sort of see the almost artificiality of those roses which never open properly don't smell very good or those lilies that are just kind of too perfect too perfect and too <laughs> and you know like if you grow lilies you know that they're never going to be completely perfect because there's always going to be a scarlet lily beetle creeping around somewhere to to take a hole out of one of them to me that's part of the joy and that's what you're missing with those plastic wrapped roses it's a really hard one though because like you say this is really important money for these countries mm. and now the real statement there should be that people shouldn't be growing flowers for another country but growing fruit for their own country right because a lot of these flowers are grown under glass or in polytunnels so that they don't get any rain splash and so they look perfect and that's kind of a gross misconduct on land use when you should be growing as much food as possible for your country in your country and not having to import it so every time you take a bit of land and and make it for food that you're exporting somewhere else, right? You're stealing land off someone else. So there's land grab issues around yes, some of there, it. Yes, there is. There are, there are land grab issues. I mean, I suppose it is, you know, within the global economy and the dictates of a global economy, it is very difficult to start trying yeah. to say to other countries what they should yeah, be growing, of you know. I mean, but is there, is there any kind of standard? Can you look for something that says that this has at least got good workers' rights or less pesticide use or something like that yeah i mean the fair trade standard has been a really big thing for the fair trade uh, foundation Mm -hmm. i know they only do certain flowers 
But that is, you know, that's a very secure standard, in my opinion, in terms of workers' rights mm. and premium that's gone back to a community. And there are some environmental attributes to that as well. I did have a look before I came on to see what other standards there were. And to be honest, there were a lot that I didn't recognise. Nice. So that mm. that's not great, but they're not very consumer-facing. So there were a lot of quite kind of chewy, jargony right. standards within the industry. And until the industry is made to feel the heat a little bit on its ethics... So maybe people like me shouldn't just write about it on Valentine's yes. Day. I'm not sure that they're going to develop proper consumer standards so that we know what's going on. I mean, you've just alluded there, Alice, to the lack of transparency, really. Mm. And it is so technically focused and it's so about environmental reports that have been done for the World Bank or whatever that we're not getting enough information and maybe that's something that the alternative, so you know, the British growers, mm-hmm. the slow growers, the flower foresters, or, you know, whatever mm. they call themselves, need to kind of shine a light on the abuses that are going on within mm. the mainstream industry and give their own perspective a little bit of a boost. Because I think there is an appetite for something else. Like you said, Jane, who wants a sort of insipid, waxy, processed flower that doesn't smell of anything and is from a very uncertain provenance? Lucy, thanks very much. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Want a perfectly mowed lawn? The Husqvarna Ride-On Lawn Mower Range features a unique articulated steering system and front-mounted cutting deck, giving you unrivaled maneuverability in tight spaces, around trees, under benches, and against fences, allowing easy navigation of most complex lawns. Husqvarna, ready when you are. So if you want to buy British grown flowers or even grow your own, how do you go about starting a cutting patch? Which flowers are foolproof and what should we be sowing now? Well, joining us in the studio is Charlie Rory and down the line is Ben Ranyard. Now, Charlie is a former journalist who accidentally started a flower growing business and she lectures on cutting gardens and runs the British Flower School at Maperton Gardens. And Ben Ranyard from Higgledy Garden grows traditional annual flowers in a paddock in Cornwall, which he sells online and a few select Cornish shops. He's an absolute expert on sowing flower seed. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. you. Can we have a legitimate British cut flower industry, Charlie? Do you think it's something we can... Because we once upon a time had a very decent industry and then, you know, we had a lot of imports and the price of flowers have gone down. And as two people who both have your kind of, you know, have a foot in that, do you think it's... Do you think there's a future for British cut flowers? I'm actually... I should say yes, 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 but I'm not entirely sure. There's certainly a future for lots of small-scale growers of British cut flowers. There's a future for people doing it um, on a sort of small market garden scale, fantastic, so people can buy locally. I'm not entirely sure there is a future for commercial British growing since the... um, basically the subsidies from abroad, the the wages that we have to pay, everything over here. It's very difficult, the transport hubs. I'd love to say yes, but frankly, I'm not entirely convinced that we can ever recreate the industry that we had before. But, I mean, on the, the good news is that there are many, many more people growing locally, small scale, sometimes reasonable scale, so it is possible for people to get good British flowers. The main problem is that it's very hard for the florists 
to get a good regular supply of British flowers. And without the florists being able to get them for their contract jobs and all the rest of it, it's very hard to see how you can actually change the public's perception and make British flowers the norm. Mm. I would totally agree. The arrangement that we now have with Colombia, Kenya, is almost impossible to break. It's, it's a really tight unit that's made, I mean, we've got an industry that's, that's tight all the way through to the suppliers in, in as much as the vans you know, pull up outside the, the florists. And this, this has been going on for 30 years, and it's very lucrative. So, so to expect um, the new growth that we definitely have of, of artisan flower growers in the UK, to be able to break that is just, is just nonsensical. It's just not going to happen. And so there's a lot of our listeners who are probably thinking about starting a cutting patch or have already given growing flowers uh, a go in their garden or on their allotment. What advice would you have for somebody who's thinking that they might devote a small corner of their garden to flowers? Where do you start? Start small. <laughs> Don't start too big. I, When I started, I very foolishly started by carving up an acre and it was nuts really because then it gets out of control and then you get depressed and then it all gets tricky. Just start small, see if you enjoy it, see what you like growing, and then you'll probably get the bug and st- end up growing masses. And what about preparing your soil? What kind of things do you do? How do you, uh, do you need to, apart from getting rid of perennial weeds, is there any sort of tricks and tips you've got for sort of that kind of thing? Does the soil need to be extra well prepared in the way you would do for vegetables or is it a bit less well there's a bit rigorous. of a there's a bit of a myth that it doesn't need to be prepared at all there's a bit of a myth that you can grow flowers on anything like mm. wildflowers basically the better prepared your soil the easier it is going to be to grow anything it doesn't really matter whether it's a vegetable or a flower or anything else but you don't absolutely need to lavish phenomenal amounts of muck and love on the, all the rest of it um, but really the better prepared you are for any kind of gardening the better plants will grow and what about you, Ben? Have you got any tips for newbies? I have. I have. I've got loads of tips for that. And, and the best tip is just simply completely eradicate your weeds, first of all. So, I mean, a, a really good tip to start off with, if, if, if you, I mean, I make my beds about three, three feet wide. If you can make that bed three feet wide, generally sort of in, in April, and then let the weeds that are going to come through, come through and then hoe them off shallowly. And then and, and so in weeds. Weeds are your enemy. They're the they're, they're the things that are going to totally mess up your lovely life with growing flowers. So get rid of them. You can do it so gently if if you just allow yourself a bit of time. So one or two weeks just before you sow, keep hoeing off that area. Don't rush to sow your seeds. And I think there's a big danger when people sort of get very enthusiastic and start sowing seed very early and and, and don't have. Early, I'm terribly yeah. impatient. Every, everybody jumps in at this mm. at this early April early April thing. There's no reason to do that. You can you can sow all the way through through to, to the end of May. You can you can sow um, and then obviously you've got your biennials in in June and July. There's no rush to sow early. Um, on the other hand, there is one thing that is really helpful. If you can have a patch clear and sowed in at the end of August, beginning of September, because then you'll have annuals by the middle of May. I've got some already, and they're from last winter sowing. So it is really nice to have one bit cleared first. So there's basically two windows of opportunity for hardy annuals, right? You can do a spring sowing, and you're saying then do a second one again at the end of summer so that you have early blooms? Well, you can do more than that. I mean, you can do as Ben says, you can start sowing in spring and you can sow 
right through to the end of May or if the weather's not too hot you can carry on a bit longer to have annuals right at the end of the year but to get the earliest sort of late spring early summer flowers you want to sow one in late August September. And do you have any recommendations because what I really want to find is because my head is all taken up with vegetables 99% of my head is vegetables um, and so I, I like to leave a percent for cut flowers um, but I'm always looking for things which because I never quite get succession sowing with cut flowers right so I'm always trying to look for things which will do kind of a really good version of repeat blooming so that basically I can I can be a bit lazy about the whole thing so do you have any recommendations for great easygoing repeat bloomers this is over to you Ben I think well I'm, I'm not a, a, yes that there are things you can have for repeat blooming like nigella which would have a small sort of flowering period but there's also a, a good argument for just um, forget repeat blooming just so different things a little bit later so for, for instance your half hardy annuals like rudbeckia uh, nicotiana you can, you can sow them later you can sow them now and well into the end of may and have a have a, a different set of flowers rather than have the same flowers over a sort of successional period most people that, that I deal with on my site don't have huge cut flower patches. They have quite small cut flower patches. So why would they want to have the same thing uh, over that period? Why not have something a little bit later? But you can otherwise things for what you... I mean, things like amimagus. If you've got um, a sowing from the autumn for the hardy annuals, mm-hmm. if you've got something that then is coming up quite soon now, I mean, you can even just let that self-sow and you'll get a load later on. So you don't have to bother about it at all. Those are so, my favourites. You know. I love those things. Yeah. Itself. So, I mean, nigella is just brilliant because once you've sown it, you've got it and it's going to cut. Even if it comes up in the wrong place, you can always collect the seed and, and then spread it elsewhere. And it's just such a beautiful, intricate flower. This is love in a mist. It's also known as it's got the most incredible, intricate flowers. And I find those a bit of a winner. I also like because they're basically just so low maintenance and I'd never do anything with them. The perennial cornflower, Centaurium montana, I just think is a brilliant plant and I mean I've got it growing in gravel literally no soil in gravel I've got it growing in clay bits in the shade and it just does this thing and it it produces lots of extra flowers and, and nice foliage are there any other ones like that that you would recommend that just kind of are so easy going well if I can come in I would be absolutely against that because I love I love things to be changed every year I love <laughs> the, the fact the whole the whole scheme of everything has changed everything is but that's is, kind is, of is high totally maintenance different. though right Ben for like it's, no it's not high maintenance okay. at all it's, just, it's a little bit of effort and a lot of joy you know that, that comes from it I'm, I'm doing um, some beds for the, the Port Elliot Festival this year and, and one of them is, is uh, I'm trying to be quite pretentious with this bed and, and make it into an art form called the snow goose and the phoenix so i'm putting a load of uh, white cosmia some um, cosmos rather cosmos purity for the for the start of the season and that all burns away over the season the helichrysum that comes up the big red so yeah just it, it, these can all be sown at the same time it, it, it just depends on how, how how you want your garden to be and how productive you want it to be i mean i, spe- um, I suppose there's a big difference isn't there between so there's a thing about having an annual cut flower patch where you are going to an area and you're going to grow those plants just to be cut for the vase and then there's great plants in your garden which will be great garden plants but they also happen to be quite mm. good for the vase in in yeah. um, well, that, that, that's a big difference Alice isn't it if, if, if you want a productive cut flower garden or, or if you want a garden 
No, I don't agree, actually, Ben. Sorry, but um, I've got because I've got a, sort of just to cut flowers, some annual patches. But the whole of my garden, when I moved to garden, I decided that every single plant in the garden had to be cuttable. So therefore, okay, you can get more bulk from annuals, but it's just fantastic to build up a whole garden with everything, even the ground cover plants can be cuttable. And, you know, it's so it doesn't have to be one or the other. You really can do both, I reckon. And to go back to what Jane was saying about things like love in a mist. I mean, I think love in a mist is a great plant. But when you're growing something like that, I mean, just grow one of the amazing varieties. It doesn't have to be just the ordinary pale blue one. I mean, you've probably got amazing seeds for different nigellas, Ben. I mean, there are just some wonderful ones that people might not have tried, like Hispanica, the really dark blue ones with the great horned pods or white ones or green ones. I mean, grow the old favourites, but grow really nice, adventurous varieties of them. Well, actually, no. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm completely against that. I'm I, I really totally with the, with the, with the old favourites, because I'm really new to it. I'm, I'm new to the whole game. I've started quite, you know, quite early. I've done well. I've, I've built my business through it. But but it's um, it's about just these wonderful standards and, and why why um, and for instance blue cornflowers, cornflower blue, just one of the most amazing plants that's ever met my retina. I love it. I, I can't can't imagine having a summer without that. You know, these things are more important than, than speciality varieties. That, I'm that go- I'm going to I'm going to kind of come and even the place and think that there's probably room for both the straight species <laughs> and the old fashioned and the new and weird and wonderful. I mean, one of the joys about g- having your own cut flower patch is that you have this opportunity to experiment and you don't have to do the same thing every year. And actually, for the price of the seeds, it's a very cheap way to get a summer's worth of flowers particularly if you think how much it costs to go and buy a really lovely beautiful bouquet of flowers every week now one of the things that i'm quite interested about is those tips and tricks for actually picking because when you pick and how you pick makes quite a big difference to how the flowers last in the vase like it's that whole thing that you have to get up at the crack of dawn really true well I don't know if it is, actually. I mean, I read an old floristry book recently from the 50s, which was completely against everything I've ever said and done. But it suggested that you pick flowers when it's really hot because then you put them into water and they're so thrilled with the water that they (laughs) hydrate really fast, which is kind of an interesting idea. But it's not. Usually I would say get up as early as you can because early in the morning, especially when it's been hot, your stems have got... They're the most turgid. They've got more water in than they have at any other time of day. So then you can put them into water and they'll keep all the moisture in them. So they will keep fresh longer. And some things you do have to give special treatment to, like people say, don't pick hellebores. But I love hellebores in the winter. I just think they're so beautiful as a cut flower. And if you pick them and you put them in water right up to their necks overnight and then that the ones that are going to droop will droop and the ones that won't won't. So there are a few tips and tricks, but... I don't, you don't have to wander around your garden with a bucket of water in your hand and put things straight into it because, for heaven's sake, it's just not practical. No. And does changing the water make a big difference? Changing the water makes more difference than anything. Right. Once you cut them, change the water every day. They'll last much longer. Top five annuals that, that people can be sowing now, Ben. What what should people be sowing? Oh, uh, top five. Oh, that's top 100. I mean, there, there, could be, there could be millions. But, I mean, uh, there'll be things like borage. I mean, uh, bee-friendly stuff. Let's sow some bee-friendly stuff. You know, the borage and the phacelia and the piper's bugloss would be really good. Ami Ami is always a good one. Melope, Melope, Trifida, Vulcan is a, is a fantastic thing to be, to be saying. They're all easy as well. The beautiful thing about growing flowers as opposed to growing veg is 
there's lots lots of people that haven't got those skills or haven't got the time because they're, they're running a family to to learn all those things growing flowers is really really easy and Perhaps you can be you can... quite abusive to them you can you can you can sow them and leave them and walk away and they'll still do what you know, Can you approve something that I'm planning, Ben? I'm thinking I'm I'm ripping <laughs> out some wallflowers which uh, are no oh, longer um, yeah. d- doing their thing. They're 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 wallflower Vulcan, and they're kind of a bit. They don't really go with the colour of my garden, although my parents-in-law think they're fantastic. Anyway, I'm ripping <laughs> them out, and I'm planning yeah. to sow some white and dark red cosmos and some wild carrot. Does that that yeah. sort of pinky well carrot? Does that sound like a good combination to you? Or have of you got course, anything... it sounds like a good combination. Whatever your own combination is that, that you think you want to plant is a good combination. But as it happens, it is a good combination. Yeah, fantastic. Cosmos, just cosmos, just rule anyway. The Greeks um, named cosmos cosmos because they thought the way the leaves were positioned so beautifully and accurately were in line with the, the, what they believed was the level of the, the cosmos. They're just so beautiful. So, yeah, I mean, you can't make a mistake in your life if you're growing cosmos. So. Oh, that's making me feel all happy inside. <laughs> and then, <laughs> no, I did we... see, actually, actually, B&Q were selling um, cosmos uh, sensation, which they, they seem to do every year. They sell them as plants for 12 quid. Yeah. They're an annual plant yeah. and they yeah. sell them for 12 quid. There's... So it, it, it's quite an interesting thing that these are things you, you, can, you, can, you can easily grow yourself. Uh, easily and quickly and, and, and make a make one a of my favourites is larkspur I love mm. larkspur. I've never had any, see I, I have real slug failures. problems yeah. with larkspur though mm. larkspur yeah. is very erratic it's very difficult and it, it can be a, it can be a really little sort of madam as, as to how it sort of gets itself together but once it's done then I mean if if, if you don't like larkspur then your retina have fallen off you know, ben, the... ben you should see Charlie's face right now when you called, <laughs> when you called her larkspur madam <laughs> I love larkspur I just have to grow masses of larkspur but what do you do about the slugs Charlie what's your slug solution I actually mainly use I have a friend who's in catering and I get all their eggshells oh. from all their baking I've got an agar, so I bake them in the bottom of the agar, and I just scatter them everywhere. Right. That's a good trick. I need a friend in catering. (laughs) And it does work, as far as I know. Last year, I didn't, at one point, I lost the whole of the first crop. I I didn't do anything about slugs. I was just going la-di-da-di-da. And and then the second lot, I did the eggshells, and this year I've done the eggshells. And so far, touch wood Mm. has been... Because they just don't like, you know, going over crispy stuff. Mm. No. Yeah, but I, you must bake them, otherwise you get a real rodent problem. Right. Uh, okay. Okay, that's a good tip. And Ben, what's your slug method? Uh, I just let them get on with it, really. And uh, I'm, I'm, we've just got a good relationship. They, they, they come, they go. They Are you a non-slug killer? Are you? Do you like? No, no. I'm quite happy to kill slugs. I mean, if, if I'm out, if I can be bothered, I'll be, out, I'll be out with a pair of scissors and, and keep them off. But generally, I haven't ever had a complete failure of my cut flower gardens, and I don't think slugs have ever had a complete failure either. So. We just we just sort of make a make a sort of it's like the Gaza Strip really with me and slugs. They just you've made your peace some, with I the slugs. Some, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Oh, well, that's a good, good attitude. That's good to hear. Um, now we get endless amounts of questions uh, about growing flowers for your wedding uh, because you know there's a real and you can see all the joy about why people want to grow flowers for weddings I've done three weddings I refuse to ever do another one ever again <laughs> just don't ask Alice nobody asks Alice to do this <laughs> because I have never had so many sleepless nights running up to the up to the wedding as, as thinking oh my god nothing's going to be ready or it's all going to be rain splashed but 
do you guys have any tips for people? Is it a sensible thing to do? It's really no, sensible. It's, can I just come in? First of all, no, <laughs> absolutely. Don't grow flowers for brides. They're, they're, they're I completely disagree. Don't anywhere totally. near them. They've just got a different agenda to you. And yours is about surfing and stroking a dog and just making a living. And theirs is about having this weird and wonderful day that involves flowers. Are have we no, 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 no. That's really, that's, here, so, that's so not true. I have... anyway, right, that's, that's, that's my view. I, um, as, as you were, well, uh, anyone that comes to the Higgledy site will know I don't do weddings. Well, we do loads and loads of weddings. And I love doing weddings because we get really, really nice brides. Um, I do admit that if it looks as though they're not going to like our attitude, I suggest they go somewhere else, which is fine. But we have just great brides who really love the handmade, homegrown feel of everything. So, yeah, you just have to you have to be relaxed and you have to make sure that your bride is relaxed. Right. Relaxed brides. Relaxed that's brides. Brides. I've never heard of it. So. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I have, actually, I... No, honestly, it's true. It works, really. And then it's really enjoyable. All, all my boys were were relaxed. It you was weren't relaxed. <laughs> just the panic of thinking yeah. that. I mean, I suppose because you have to be creative. Yes, and I think that is the real trick, isn't it? Because in the last, the very first wedding I did was for my cousin, and I realised didn't have nearly enough. So I went. I have to say that the parks of London might have been a bit <laughs> a bit thin on things. A bit <laughs> of flower foraging going on was there. Uh, there was yeah. quite a lot of flower foraging going on that one. Ben, uh, can we have a shout out for biennials? I know if this is going to split the crowd again, but. I'm as I'm the thing I'm massively excited about right now is my Verbascum Violetta, which is uh, about to flower, and I'm really excited because I green them from seed. These plants, and they're very happy in my <laughs> I've garden. I've never now. grown Verbascum, but I can imagine I can imagine your joy. See, Verbascum are like um, they're like a space rocket from the future. Just come back to remind you how good things are. They're, they're incredible. <laughs> well, I saw them there's at a, Chelsea, a... and I, I just thought I'm going to give these a go, and I find them incredibly easy. For, I'm not the, not an expert seed sower, but I find Verbascums really well. Really you don't need easy. to be. There's no such thing as an expert seed sower. Seeds well, I, just I, fall I, off plants think... and grow. We did, all we're doing. It's just moving them from one place to another. One of the things which is lovely about the cut flower, and I hope you guys agree, is that it's a really good skill. It's a very simple skill, sowing mm-hmm. seeds. And knowing that there are definitely huge issues with the import cut flower business, even if you have a very small patch, your small patch can have a really strong environmental and ethical kind of heart to it, as well as being one of the loveliest gifts you can possibly give both yourself and anybody around you. Charlie and Ben, thanks very much. Next week, we're going to be at Chelsea and we've decided we're going to play Chelsea Bingo. Now, we aren't quite sure what Chelsea Bingo is yet. Maybe it's like every time you see Alan Tixmarsh, you should have a shot of, of something hard. Or maybe we should try and count how many crazy painted ladies we can find there. So if you have any ideas to the rules of Chelsea Bingo, please let us know. You can get in touch with us by tweeting us at Guardian Gardens joining our Facebook group, also called Guardian Gardens, or emailing us at askalice at theguardian.com. 